Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. In this episode, we're going to learn and understand what someone with a mental health issue goes through. We're going to have a conversation with two people who bear their souls to us. We're going to take a personal journey with them as they navigated mental health challenges here in the United States and in the UK. We're going to learn what it's like to have a mental illness in today's society and how it's treated both in public health and in private health. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About the Mental Heads. My guests in this episode, two guests actually this time we're lucky enough to have, are Emma and Paul. In the podcast world, The Mental Heads. Welcome to the show, guys. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. Can you kind of introduce yourselves and know a little bit more? Emma? Yeah. Well, um, my journey with mental health started three years ago um, for reasons that are probably far too complicated to go into. I ended up at the doctor's um, getting some medication um, and was given an antidepressant. And I had three doses and suddenly felt a side effect that didn't feel right. So I went back to the doctor and explained it. And they put it down to the side effect being the depression. And I said, no, it's not that at all. I don't feel depressed. It's a horrible internal feeling. And after that, every single professional I came across um, diagnosed depression. And they said that my obsessive thought about the medication doing damage was a psychosis. So um, the journey started with a psychiatrist diagnosing that uh, into a mental hospital for four weeks, out again. Um, Symptoms didn't get any better, given more and more medication treating depression and psychosis, even though I was telling them that wasn't the case. And it went on for 18 months. So in total, it was seven months in mental hospitals. Uh, One sectioning, which in this country under the National Health Service means that you are actually put into hospital by force. It's not your choice. And so that was for over 13 weeks. And sadly, within that time, I had electric convulsive therapy which is the old electric shock therapy on your head, Um, went back into the private sector because in this country we've got the NHS, which is state-funded, and the private sector, what you're usually covered if you've got insurance, and eventually got out the other side when I um, bumped into Paul in hospital. I'd known him when I was 18. So we bumped into each other. We're really surprised to see each other because you don't expect to, to see someone in hospital that you knew all that time ago. And he was shocked I was there. And I told him my story and said, nobody's believing me. You know, this has gone on 18 months and absolutely no one was believing me and no professional did. So after seeing 15 consultants and doctors and specialists, um, you can see why the balance of probability lay with the professionals, even though I never, ever changed my story. So finally, I got to see Paul psychiatrist. And I said to Paul, there's no point, you know, there's no point going because no one's going to believe me. But he did after three meetings. He was beginning to get the bottom of what it was and said, yes, I believe you. And then he started me on the right road of treatment. And we're two years on now. He's still my doctor. And he got me right. But um, it was really by passing each other by and Paul saying, I've got this great psychiatrist, go and see him. Um, otherwise, I don't know where this journey would have ended, actually. Oh, well, well done, Paul. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, it's with Emma, it, it's a totally different story because I was quite lucky. I knew when I was about 16 there was a problem. And, you know, you what they call, and I think you might use this term in the States as well, 
you wear a mask and it's a mask what covers up how you feel. So you go out, it's lights, cameras, action. But when you go behind closed doors, it's a very dark time. And I've always had this and I just had to do, had to get by. And it was such hard work. And I was out in the States for 10 years and you can't show any weakness out there. Uh, because what annoyed me is you've got to keep really quiet about mental illness out there because there's so much attached to the stigma of mental health. And what I couldn't understand, you could go to a HR company and say, right, I'm coming to you. I need some help. Uh, I've got a drug problem. Okay, pat you on the back. They send you off, get you in a rehab because you've gone to them and they haven't come to you. Totally different out in the States with a lot of uh, this was uh, in the with this it's aviation sector. You could then go and say, I've got an alcohol issue. OK, you've come to us. We're going to get your help. You go there with a mental illness. It's like, what do we do with this person? And and that is what I found. And over here, what I'm getting now is that I know <laughs> someone who worked for a, a top bank bank in London. And they virtually said, look, we don't know what to do with you. We're going to pay you full pay, but just stay at home until we know what we're going to do with you. You know, and this is the thing. So in 2015, 16, my wheels started to come off and that was it. I needed to go somewhere. I went to a private doctor's because one thing I realized being in America, private health. OK, so when I came back here, I, I've got that American beaten into me that it's very important health. So I've always had uh, private health over here, which is like the US. I would say it was like the private health you used to have about 15 years ago. Uh, now the doctors want to, the insurance companies want you out in two, three days. And there's so much pressure on doctors getting getting you out of hospitals. So I would base our healthcare, uh, the private healthcare on America probably 15 years ago. So I went to my doctor, who's a private GP over here, and um, I said, look, I, I just can't deal with this. So she put me on medication and said, right, let's give it to Christmas. And it was a horrible time in 2015. And I went back and she said, you know what? Why you can make the decision to go into hospital instead of someone else making it for you, you know, I'm going to send you to a very, very good psychiatrist. And I went there and, you know, it doesn't over happen overnight. You go to a psychiatrist and this is the thing about it. And you sit in front of a psychiatrist. They just write and write and write and write. And you think, well, what's this guy doing for me? You know, well, you know, that was with me. What is he doing? You know, I, I, I'm not getting the help. And that, but how wrong you are because they're getting the picture. And one good thing about um, our psychiatrist now is he listens to the patient instead of reaching for the prescription pad. Listen to that patient. So then he said, look. I'm going to put you into a hospital. So I went into a mental hospital in London and it was under the private sector, you know, very expensive to go into, but I was lucky because of the insurance I had. And that's where it all took off, really. So I've battled with it for many, many, many years, but just kept quiet about it and and struggled, to be honest with you. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, this journey, obviously, something that you recognize, which is a positive thing. Same thing with with you, Emma, I think that it's very positive. You guys recognize something, and perseverance is perseverance is key. In communication, is key. I think to success, you have to be able to persevere through it. And and communication is positive um, because if somebody's there not there to listen, I think that it, it it's 
you have no chance of success if nobody's going to listen to you, which is opposite what you had felt, right? Emma, you didn't get anybody to listen to you for a long time. No, and I think, um, you know, I'm an intelligent person, so at times I was presenting evidence I'd found, you know, on the internet, but I'm not just blogs or or forums of people talking who didn't know anything about mental health. I was even presenting a lot of American research, actually, I'd found on the internet, and I was told when I was surrounded by very, very ill people within the NHS, well, come to your consultants meeting and bring all your research. So I'd turn up with documentary evidence. That's not a seriously mentally unwell person. That is someone that is suffering with a side effect, but has it in them to try to get a case together. But the trouble is my notes followed me wherever I went. So once you've been in the private sector, once you go into the National Health Service, they're going to look at the private sector notes as probably being um, more detailed and, and I'd been under the private sector for months. So the NHS, rather than look at it afresh, looked at the private sector and said, well, they must have got it right. So we're going to just do exactly the same and treat her in the same way. So there was never a fresh set of eyes. And right from the start, um, the doctor had certain information. I'd spoken to him at a very, very upsetting point at the start when I knew the medication had affected me. And to be honest, I felt like I'd been poisoned because I thought it's in my body now. And I was trying to explain, well, you need to somehow get this sorted um, and give me something to counteract the medication. But because I was so distressed and I was absolutely intent on getting this point across, I was classed as psychotic. Now, looking at it now, I had absolutely no symptoms of psychosis because it was just this thought. But because I wasn't shifting it, they thought that if they gave me antipsychotics, it would shift. And it never did. So eventually they said I had treatment resistant depression because every medication hadn't worked. And I kept saying, well, of course, it's treatment resistant because I haven't got it. Um, I must have been on, oh, we talk about it, don't we? I've probably been on 10 different antidepressants, five different antipsychotics. Wow. And I do worry now if they've done any damage because obviously I was taking them and had to take them in hospital. I think we have to remember that in a mental hospital, whether you're in there of your own choosing or not, you're in there to take the medication. So you will be watched. And if you stop taking it, then the doctor will get involved. So I was having to take medication every day that wasn't doing anything at all. And, and this, just to clarify, this was in in the not the private sector, but the public portion of your guys's health. Oh, both. Sure, correct. Both. Yeah, I, Emma had both. I, I just had the private sector. Yeah, I I had both. Um, I had private insurance, which meant that I could go in to the private sector. But what we have is you can usually only claim once a year for like a hospital stay. So I'd already been in four weeks. So when I went back in for seven weeks into the private sector, that was self-pay. And my dad funded that and that was a lot of money, but he believed that it was the right place for me to be. But eventually after nearly eight weeks of self-funding, I wasn't getting any better. So I ended up coming out and going into our national health service for one night. And I got sent there straight from the private sector with a nurse. And I managed to convince them to let me out. 
So I got out after one night um, and then I was at home for about a month and a half and I was being told I had to go to daycare on the NHS. I was collected every morning in a little white van. Lots of other people collected all along the way, lots of very ill people and we were taken to a centre and then we literally let in, the doors were locked and we spent all day there, no activities. There was a room wow. where you sat and it was a, a day centre and it was meant to keep people stable and, and give you medication. So I had all day there and I was told, if you don't go to this daycare, you will be put in hospital. So I was trying to stop the inevitable happening. That's unbelievable, actually. That's, that sounds like something out of a movie. It, it was awful. And I knew, to be honest, I've said to Paul a few times, I knew the inevitable was going to happen. I knew I would eventually be sectioned because you can't carry on saying, I can't carry on like this because the uninformed don't understand what those words mean. So the trouble is, once you start saying that, to me, that was a help me, a cry for help. It wasn't saying, oh, I don't want to live anymore. And when those phrases don't get understood, people then panic and then put you into hospital. But what I was saying is, come on, just listen, somebody. But nobody was. And um, as the months got went by, I thought, well, I don't know where this is going at all, because uh, you get put in hospital in the NHS and you're allowed to appeal within 14 days against being put in hospital. So I went in front of a, a panel, like a little jury, to appeal my sectioning. And I had a, a solicitor because you're allowed a solicitor for free with mental health the act, you're allowed to have someone supporting you. And I put forward a very good case. Uh, I held myself together. I did it very professionally. And they even said she has a fantastic case. She understands her issues. Um, she presented it so well. But on the balance of all the evidence we had, remembering this is all my hospital notes from before, we still believe she's got depression and psychosis. So I'd gone to the tribunal. So I started to think this is, I thought I was in hell at some times. I literally believed that. And I'd got to a point I actually did believe I'd die because I said, I remember saying to Paul, at that point, if you can't get out of hospital and no one's believing you, I started to think this can't be real. But it was. Is that type of the treatment like prevalent in, in the UK? This is for either one of you. I would, the, the trouble is, I would say... I don't know about, I've never heard anybody else's story like mine, but, um, and I'd love to meet the person if there is another person, because I'd like to say what an awful time you've had. I would say that I think things are, I think medication is wrongly prescribed. Um, I do think people have very, very bad side effects. I know that the side effect I felt is suffered by tens of hundreds of thousands of people. Some of it get noticed, some of it doesn't. But I do think, especially within our National Health Service, there was, is too much reliance on giving people medication very quickly without a true diagnosis, um, not giving any therapy. And the trouble mm. is if you, as we've always said, if you have one but not the other, you're not going to get well because the medication is given, but you need the therapy also. And sometimes I think if we had more therapy, we wouldn't need to be giving people as much medication. I agree with that. Here in the United States, they 
the prescription pad, as you said earlier, Paul, the prescription pad is forefront. Yeah. They carry it in with them. They've got it in their hand like they've already are ready to write the prescription, no matter what it happens to be for. Within our experience, within our family, we've had an individual that literally was diagnosed, and I won't mention any names, but uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disease over the telephone, which is unfathomable to me. It's like you cannot diagnose somebody with bipolar over the telephone. No way. So, yeah, I think it's a problem here, a huge problem here. They medicated her, they put her on some medication, and the medication she was having severe reactions to it, just like you guys, severe reactions to it, more negative reactions than actually having the disease. And I won't say disease, the illness. Yeah. So so it's it just blows me away that that even takes place. So I agree with you on that. Paul, what what do you see in different between when you were here in the United States being treated for it, other than what you had described earlier, but do you see any major significant differences between how they treated you here and how they treated you in the UK? The thing is, and I and I mean this, and this is coming probably your American listeners will will probably disagree or agree. I don't know, but I only can speak as I find, and I feel I'm looked after in the states. I feel the United States are at the top of their game. If you look at medication, the the funding for these medications, the new research medication, it comes out of America at the end of the day. You know, if it wasn't for the states, we would struggle with research. We haven't got the resources in other countries like the, yeah, okay, people say, well, it's money making. Well, of course it is. They've got to get their money off of that drug, you know, and it'll stay a brand before it can turn into a generic. You know, that's where they, but if you think on how much research goes into that medication, you know, you can understand why they run it for eight years. But I do think the medication is way overpriced. That is one problem I have. And I think, but I do think you're looked after, but I also think it can cause issues with people because not everyone can afford healthcare in America. That's you know? true. And, true statement. and I looked at the Obama uh, treatment plan and what he put in place. And the thing is, you would have still been a family of four $18,000 still out of pocket. Now, you know, you can't get political, I know, but what I can't understand is the system over there with this 80-20 or 70-40 or out of pocket, you know, it, it, it's just a downfall. So when you say over here, okay, the socialised medicine is there, and it's free, well, it's in your taxes, but it's it's there to go to. You go to the emergency room, you don't pay anything. You go to your doctor, you don't pay anything. But at the end of the day, do I want to go into a doctor's office over here and have 10 minutes, 10 minutes of that, talking to the doctor, or do I want to pay 150 bucks in America and go in front of a doctor who's going to take my weight, who's going to take my blood pressure, and and... And I can talk to. Yes, they do go for the prescription pad, but I still feel I'm looked after more in the United States than I am in this country under the socialized medicine. That makes a lot of sense. I can I can see both sides of that. I appreciate our healthcare here. Um, we're lucky enough to have healthcare that is. My wife 
from my wife, I'm retired. When I was with the police department, I got injured in the line of duty. So I uh, was retired with a medical disability. My wife works a very good job and we get, we have really good insurance, actually. For the most part, we, we have a deductible that we pay out, but it's very minimal, actually. And we get the privilege of uh, being able to go see who we want to see when we want to see them. Sometimes the appointments are six weeks down the road or four weeks down the road. But like you said earlier, it's kind of one of those things where you do go in there and they take the time with you and they sit and listen and they sit and talk. They, you know, they take a, an active approach to this, um, to anything, whether it be, you know, the, your mental health or physical health. You know, they take that approach, which is positive. How did you find your psychiatrist in, in the UK, Paul? I was quite lucky because I had a, a private doctor and she is a very good private doctor and she does a lot of um, uh, television work for medical called Embarrassing Bodies over in this country where people go with all kind of problems, speak out about things and, you know, some men don't want to talk about issues and things like that. But she she's an Irish doctor and she opens up so much and allows that person to really say, it's okay, you can tell me everything. It's not a single thing I haven't seen. So I was lucky enough to have her as my GP for many years. And that's who said to me, look, I know a person, I know him well, I'm going to send you to him. So I was quite lucky because I had that GP saying, look, I'm going to help you out here. I've sent loads of people to this guy. You know, I know him well. So it's not the fact of going onto the computer, trying to find a psychiatrist, because you don't know what they're like, you know, and it's like everything. It's like the States. There's good and bad, you know, and there's people who want to take the time. I was lucky to have uh, go to see him. And, you know, the rest is with history with that, with being able to find a, a psychiatrist who listened. It's What's the trouble? I mean, for me, um, in this country, if you need to see a private doctor, you would go to your NHS GP. And you would ask them and you talk to them about what, what was wrong. And then if they said, well, you know, we need to send you to somebody, then you'd say, oh, I've got private insurance. And all they do is they write you a letter and then you book an appointment and you take that letter from your GP to say, I saw Emma, uh, she had this complaint. And so what I used to do is if I needed to see a private doctor about anything, I'd research. I'd look around, I'd look at doctors, I'd got a feel for them, and then I'd usually be able to specify the problem this time is I was so unwell, I wasn't even able to do that. So my doctor just picked a psychiatrist that they'd come across or sent someone to. So I had absolutely no choice because I was so unwell and not a fit state to even do the research I'd normally do to find a really good doctor. But funnily enough, a while ago, I said to Paul, I wonder if I could find Dr. Pereira on the internet. Let's do a search, see would I have found him? You know, you know, I did best psychiatrist in London or something. But obviously, I would never have found him because he's so low key. He's so humble. His website's not a glossy, flashy website. But he's someone that is under the radar, has thousands of patients. But I would never have found him because the ones that do the glossy adverts all over the Internet are probably the ones that don't have enough patients. The, the ones that don't have to do all that are very busy, very good at their job. So it was just really um, by pure fate of, of bumping into Paul that he said, look, this guy's great. And I said, well, no, he won't be because no one else has listened. But he did. So there's a happy ending. 
thankfully. And that's, yeah, I'm thankful for that. You had made comment to me, I think, in something that you had sent to me with regard to you had an experience, something like um, the Jack Nicholson movie. The one flew over the cookie's nest. Yes. How would you relate your experience to that? Can you help us understand what somebody goes through? I mean, I know you, earlier you explained what you went through, but tell me what it's like to, to be right in the middle of that. I think I always refer, I refer to that film because I think that's the iconic film everyone remembers when people are talking about electric shock therapy, which is what people have on their head. And um, I think that's, that's why I refer to what's happened and refer to that film. Obviously, I have to counteract with the point that electric convulsive therapy, which it's called now, can help people. It can actually help people who are depressed. So it is a treatment that has been proven to work. Um, I didn't need it. I had a diagnosis of depression, which is why people do have it. But the fact that I didn't have it and had it has had issues and side effects with memory, which is a common side effect. But people usually would take the risk of having it to help them get over depression, which it's usually one of the last ports of call. You know, when medication hasn't worked, that's the last port of call because there are side effects. So I would never put people off having it. It does have a bad name for it because of the archaic way it's looked at and the way it's portrayed in the films. Years ago, you didn't have an anaesthetic. So it was actually done while you were awake. I did have a mild anaesthetic. I had 10 sessions over five weeks. Um I was talking to Paul about it I a while ago. I found a video of ECT, but I'd never, ever watched anything. So I'd never actually seen what happened to me. And it was quite distressing to watch because, well, because it's a treatment I knew I didn't need to have. So that was a very unpleasant part of that whole experience with Jack Nicholson as well. He's there pretending to be insane. But then in the end he's I think turned insane and then no one's believing him and then he obviously is forced to have electric shock treatment and um and then obviously at the end he has a lobotomy and I, I always say thank goodness my story ended before then because they did used to give people lobotomies years ago that's the most frightening thing oh mental health was treated in such an archaic manner and thankfully we've moved on but the trouble is now when you look at medication Obviously, it's an official way of treating things, but medication can be as damaging as some of those really archaic things that happened. I don't think people really understand that one tablet can affect your chemicals straight away. People say, oh, you've got to be on antidepressant two or three weeks for it to work. But if that little pill does work on chemicals in your brain, why can it not have an effect after a day or two? And for me, it did. And it can happen. But they're very powerful tablets. And the trouble is, people are getting them given in this country after a 10-minute meeting with an NHS doctor, and they say, I feel really low and down. And the doctor may say, well, come back again. And you go back and say, I feel really low and down. Nobody talks about the other issues in their lives. So the doctor hasn't got enough time to talk and give them any therapy. Therapy, you can be on a waiting list for six months. Six to eight. Six to eight months. And they eight months, really. And you may not even get therapy straight away. And you'll be lucky if you get six sessions. Yep. Six You six know, sessions. now yeah, you tell me it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, six yeah, sessions. That's crazy. You're not gonna you're probably gonna get out your family history and that. You know, so before they start carving into you. But the thing is, it, it it's just a very 
we don't want to put down the NHS. No. It's a different ball game. It's totally underfunded with this uh, for mental health. And what do you expect? And this is what annoyed me coming back to the States when America talks about socialized medicine. It will never work in a million years. Never. Even if you divide up the states, it still won't work because of the costings. Hospitals are a business. They are a business. We might as well be honest about it. And pharmaceutical companies, it's all a business at the end of the day. But socialized medicine will never, ever, ever work in America. And the amount – I knew a doctor, a good friend of mine out in the States – and the amount of conventions he went to where they're discussing what Canada's doing, what the UK is doing, how Europe is with, with uh, the healthcare, it won't work. Well, the NHS. Well, I, I agree with that. I'm sorry, Emma, go ahead. The NHS in this country was set up after the war. So it was set up right after the war. And we were a very different country then. You know, the population was lower. It was very, very different. And as time has gone on, the NHS hasn't been able to grow as the years have gone on. What's happened is that they tried to reorganise it and try to set it up in a different way. And the trouble is mental health is always going to be the one that gets knocked to the side because there isn't an end, there isn't a finality with mental health, which sadly with other illnesses there are. You know, the thing is with mental health, the likelihood is that those people will live with mental health until they eventually die of something else or old age. There's no, you can't look at someone and think, right, the prognosis is is we can treat them and get them better, or unfortunately, sadly, they may not get better. But mental health, how long's a piece of string? And that's why over here, the private healthcare companies do cover you, but after three years, they have to assess where you are with your treatment. Because even with our system, with private health, they don't cover you till the end of time. They have to make a judgment about your mental health and how you're progressing in your treatment. But I think that that is the issue. How long is a piece of string with mental health? Because you may be under treatment and it may be under control, but you are still going to have to check in with a psychiatrist or with a therapist ongoing forevermore. You may be able to space the appointments out, but you will always be under treatment and you will always bring with it. And that's what, when you were talking about the healthcare system here, uh, Paul, in regard to, we've got really decent healthcare, as I said earlier, and even within that, yeah. my wife has got uh, 40 weeks. You can get healthcare, mental healthcare in specific. Um, you've got like a 40-week time period that you can use, utilize. Now, you can still continue to go to your private physician, your primary care physician, which whom can also, you know, prescribe you your medications and so forth. But if you want counseling, you want therapy or you want anything like that, then you get, there's a 40 week limit, which sometimes it takes longer than 40 weeks. We all know that situations resolved. There's always underlying issues. Not everybody has severe depression. You can be depressed one day yeah. and be happy the next day. You don't have to have a mental, totally mental, um, yeah, it's, it's something that it takes more than one session to say somebody has, has got mental illness. It also takes more than one session to determine whether or not somebody has to continue with help with that. So so the, the healthcare system here is valued. Again, not getting into a huge political discussion that I have very strong opinions on at the moment, but the the reality is, is that Obamacare, even as good as it is, mm. 
if they try to do away with it completely, it's just going to really fall flat. I agree with you in that. They just need to learn how to re-examine how it's approached and how it's utilized because the way it had been implemented in the past, it was implemented with, like you said, it was implemented with hospitals and doctors and pharmaceuticals and everything within that money-making realm. I went golfing with a guy that that said, I'm getting rich off the pharmaceutical industry. I've got stock in it. I own part of the company yep. and I'm getting rich. Yeah. And every I saw him every six months. He was like upgrading cars and houses yep. and everything. Totally, yeah. So, yeah. So it the Obamacare needs to be not eliminated and put in with, with complete social care. It needs to be reorganized, revamped, and redesigned but and then implemented that slowly. Yeah, honestly, you could be right there, um, you know, because you've got to be very careful. I'm a, I'm a little harsh in certain ways where um, I think you, you've you've come out with that, that statement you've made about it needs to be kind of revamped. And you're right, it totally has. It, 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 it shouldn't go completely. I, I backtrack a little bit on that because we've still got a lot of people in America who – you know, they are unfortunate, a lot of people. They haven't got the money and, you know, it's it's tough going, you know, sometimes out there because that's – see, and when I studied it, you know, when I looked at it out in the States, the first, I didn't realise this, and you're probably going to pick me up on it. The first insurance to go in an American family if they're really, really, really struggling about putting uh, food on the table is car insurance. Yes, I agree. Yeah. That's the first thing to go, car insurance. Yeah. Car insurance. Yep. Yeah. You've, you, I mean, you have choices to make. And yeah. choices. choices Food on the are, table or the car insurance. Exactly. And you just hope exactly. you don't hit anyone and get sued. Yeah, exactly. Or get stopped. Yeah, or get stopped. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah. But exactly, do. because they'll see it. Um, <clears throat> the same thing with, even with the Obamacare the way it is now, our youngest daughter, when she, um, before she got, uh, she had gotten laid off during the COVID situation. Mm. Um, so in interim, because she's too old to be put on our insurance, she had to go on to Obamacare. And unfortunately, within that realm, even within that system, um, it was so such a contrast between uh, what we have as private insurance and what she had as Obamacare. Um, she had something like a $4,000 deductible that she had to reach before they would start paying for anything. That's a lot of money. So yeah, she especially for somebody that's not working. Yeah, totally. You know, you you know you're uh, you're not working. You're looking for a job. You're still you're you're collecting a small amount of unemployment. And she is being treated. She probably be mad at me for this, but she is being treated, and she needs to continue her treatment. She can't miss that. No, no, definitely not. You know, you know she's being she she is doing really well on her treatment. So it's something that needed to stay in place. So, you know, we as parents, you know, had to had to pick up the slack basically in a lab so that we made sure our daughter was healthy. Okay. So things like that do need to change because Obamacare wasn't supposed to be designed that way. It was supposed to be designed that everybody had an opportunity to get decent health care. Yeah. And it, it isn't always it isn't always that way, unfortunately. Yeah. And what's sad about that is that your daughter had you to fall back on. What about if he wasn't there? What about, exactly. yeah, you know, the people in America who are on their own, $4,000 is a lot of money. It's a, a lot of money. Money for someone. And, and some people, 
don't probably see savings like that in their lifetime, some people. And that is what we've got to be honest about. It's not just the middle class, upper class. You know, it, it, it's just, it, it shocks me, to be honest. Well, and, and unfortunately, people who suffer from depression and anxiety, yep. like our family members, you know, finances is a trigger. That's it. So if you stress and you get stressed out about the fact that you can't pay for something like your medication, like your treatments, like meeting that deductible, all that's going to do is put you deeper in depression. Yeah. And it's going to give you more anxiety. And what would someone do then? Do you know what they would do? Exactly. Put it on their credit card. And then when they they ran ran up to all their credit card debt, then they would take their life because it it can happen where there's not a way out for someone. And this is what's really sad. And this is why we did our podcast it's because if we can save one person, we've done a great job, you know, and that's what it's all about. This is why you do it. That's why we do it, because it can it can have an ugly uh, it can have a bit of a sting in its tail, this depression and, and anxiety, because I also suffer from anxiety and panic attacks. And what's amazing here, and I don't like going too much into medication because what's good for someone, why I don't like it is because I can say something about a drug and someone can say, well, I'm on that and it and it works fantastic for me. But it's amazing over here under socialized medicine, you cannot get Xanax on a a private GP. You can. And I understand why, because it can be abused. You know, people can pop them like there's no tomorrow. But shall I tell you something? And this is the honest truth. From someone who suffers a panic attack, that drug is great for if you had a major panic attack. Within 20 minutes, you're on the down from it. And that's the only thing what's good. But if you're going to treat them like sweets, candy, you're on a slippery slope, on a slippery slope. So what I do, I've got a packet of Xanax in there, and I had 14 pills prescribed to me. That's how. And I've still got 14 pills out there now. But knowing I've got it is a safety blanket for when you have a massive panic attack and you know I've got an option with that but I'm not going to use those every day because that's not the way forward. But that safety blanket is always there. The quality of medication is definitely very different within the private sector here because I've been told that if I'd probably gone to the doctor and chatted to the doctor at the start about what we kind of got to the the bottom of, which was why I did react to the medication, there is no way an NHS doctor would have prescribed me what I take now because they don't prescribe that sort of medication. It's an expensive medication. Also, as we've discussed in the past, if you're on a number of medications, it's a very fine balance to get right. But you need a proper good psychiatrist who can do this balancing act. But you just haven't got the resources. In the NHS, you really will only get that top-level psychiatric treatment if you're really, really ill. For example, you're schizophrenic or you're suicidal or you've got something very severe like bipolar. See, and and the problems I have with depression pills, and I'm not a medical doctor or I'm not, you know, a scientist or anything like that, but I feel a generic medication is not as good as a branded because the branded has been tested for, say, bipolar. If you have a generic, yes, they can say, yes, it's the same, but it isn't. It's the bulking 
It's not the same. So you could have someone who's bipolar or on cotyping, say, for instance, uh, antipsychotic, but also used in a bipolar. And the brand is a totally different to the generic. And you may be given a, a, a brand which, you know, is fantastic for you. But then you switch over to a generic, hasn't got the same effect. I agree with that. My uh, first wife, her father was a pharmacist. And um, as a pharmacist in a hospital, he had always told me that um, generics aren't as aren't as good as what everybody's claiming they are. They're just really, really cheap, and um, they make them so that everybody can afford them. And the people that that can't afford the more expensive drug, they can afford a generic drug, and they're just not as good. No, no, and that's unfortunate, really. But at least uh, again, I will come back to it at least there's an option for people who haven't got the money to get the treatment. Because if it was just branded, we'd be in an awful mess, wouldn't we? We would be. What do you guys think of, um, and this is just a discussion in regard to helping helping other people in parts of your journey, Have what do you think of, uh, of holistic or naturopathic approaches to mental health? Well, I know a number of people um, commented along the way to me and I was open to everything and I had lovely friends some of who that's the basis of a lot of that's their direction as far as that's what they believe will work for them I I wouldn't ever dismiss anything because I think everything has its place and suits different people um but for me personally mine was a chemical imbalance that was never going to be fixed except by another chemical that could have actually sorted that out but for other people I think things do work and I think it's I think it comes down to the level of the severity of whatever you're suffering from I do think when we talk about this gray area between feeling very low and then going into a depression I think there are therapies that people can use that may stop you perhaps going into that severe dip but I think if something is clinical depression or something is a schizophrenia, I think the only way really to go is the medical route. I think I really believe if it's got to that level of severity, it needs to go that route with treatment. But as I said, I think everybody takes different treatments. Things work for people. I'd never dismiss anything that people has a belief over. My friends, I had friends put me through hypnosis. I ended up being hypnotized. You weren't keen on that, were you? No. But I got to a, a stage where I thought, I'll try anything. You never know. But because my brain just couldn't relax, it didn't work because I couldn't engage in it. You know, it'd be very interesting now if I was going to be hypnotized. But I just think, I think everyone should be open to everything, each to their own. But for me, I know that when it came to a certain severity, as it has with you as well, that really medication was the only route to go. I'm very mindful now of anything I ever will take ever yeah. again. Um, I'm very paranoid even about taking uh, paracetamol now, headache tablets, because I think, goodness me, I've become quite paranoid about medication. Um, and, you know, people were saying about COVID, would you have a, um, a vaccine? if they develop one and I said no and everyone was saying to me well hang on a sec it, you know it, you know it can be quite uh, damaging and both your parents have had it and I said no I wouldn't because how do I know that it's been tested enough and how do I know I won't react to it 
But people are saying, well, but what happens if you were having to sort of protect your life from it? I said, well, I have to think about it. I'm absolutely terrified because my body obviously has a predisposition to not liking certain medications. So we'll see. But um, as I said, with all these holistic therapies, yeah. I think each to their own as well. I'm, to- I'm not so diplomatic with that um, because that is me. That is I, 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 I speak my mind. I know everyone's, you know, everyone's got uh, their right to do whatever, but I'm one of these who's experienced it. The recipe to it is medication and talking therapy. Talking therapy is the way to go. I would say even more than the medication because you're getting to the root of the problem. And this is what it's all about. Let someone talk. Let them, let it. Do you know, when I was in therapy, I was going back to when I was 16 years old. Who would have thought wow. it? Wow. So, and I always, and I've said this on the podcast, and it's it's like therapy, you go in like an onion, and they take layer by layer by layer by layer off of you. Or you're like, a, I, I call it, you know, for people that don't really understand it, it's like having a little stuffed teddy bear taking the legs off, arms off, taking the stuffings out of it, putting the stuffings back in, sewing up your arms and legs and sending you back out. It's a total therapy. What can I say to you? Therapy is the way to go. You cannot get a packet of pills thrown at you and say, see you in four weeks' time. You've got to go and see that therapist, sit down with the therapist. Come on. Americans have been doing it for years. Everyone was saying, oh, crazy Americans. Everyone has a psychiatrist. Everyone has a therapist. But you know what? Look at the world now. Everyone's doing the same. So what the Americans get down, uh, get put down for, for doing for many years, is we're all catching on to it now, knowing this is the way forward. Yeah, that's cool. It reminds me, I have flashbacks of all these old movies. Even in the old movies, they're going, I have to go see my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. What what do you recommend for somebody that might be feeling the way you guys had? And obviously, you can answer together, or maybe each each of you, because you you may have different perceptions with regard to what would you recommend for somebody to look for if they're having the same kind of um, or having some kind of issues, or think that they may be suffering from some type of a, a, a mental health? Yeah, I think um, I will. You know, this is very important. That's a good question. First thing, you shouldn't say to someone, you're going to be okay, okay? Because you don't know how that person feels at that time, and that's the last thing they want to hear. So what I feel they should do is write down your thoughts. Keep a mood uh, calendar, you know, where you can get up and judge, how am I feeling? Check into yourself. It's knowing with me now, it's about a check in the morning. How are you feeling? Oh, I feel a bit rough this morning. You know, uh, well, let's check in again later, see how you're doing. So you're going through this. And then it becomes a kind of, um, it's like it's like a, a body scan of yourself every day. Getting in tune with how you are. Today I had a panic attack. I knew it was coming on. But then when you have it, you know, one, I'm not going to die because they really feel like you're going to die. And two, is that... Just do your grounding techniques, and that's making sure that your feet are firmly on the ground so you've got that grounding, and just write down how you're feeling, 
um, try and get some things out on paper, you know, try and, and, and when people are like, as you say, if people are like finding it hard to get out of bed because they feel so down, so they want to put the duvet over the, over the head and they can't face it. And it's just like do little steps every day. It's getting up, getting in the shower, brushing your teeth. It should be when someone is that low and bad, just take it one hour at a time, not one day at a time, one hour at a time, and keep checking in. And I find that would be my advice to someone, get in tune with your body, and if you are finding it hard, don't be a hero. You know, speak out, say, hey, there's something not right here, and go to the doctors before you hit the ground. Because it's a lot easier to go to a doctor while you can say, hey, this is what's wrong with me. This is the help I think I need. This is the way I feel. Then hitting the ground and then you've got to have medical care, more medical care to boost you up before you are mentally aware of what's going on and can engage in therapy. That's some outstanding advice, actually. Thank you very much for sharing that. I think that that's outstanding. Outstanding. Is there, do you think people should should reach out to uh, family and friends? Do you yeah. think that's okay? I think part of the reason why we're doing the podcast is because we're being so open about what's happened to us and, you know, revealing as time goes on some quite personal parts of our experiences. So be able to speak out to a public forum. We hope it would encourage people to enable them to speak out to a private forum their friends and family. But I think the discussion about mental health in this country is still behind the times. We have, you know, the Royal Family, um, they have uh, a campaign called Heads Together and they're very prominent and you get lots of celebrities, they're very prominent talking about mental health issues. But I think you do need normal people talking about normal mental health problems because celebrities in lockdown here have said oh I'm suffering from anxiety and panic and social anxiety but people don't have the sympathy when they're sitting in a three million pound house and people have mental issues and they're struggling to pay the bills now obviously just because you have a three million pound house if you have depression it doesn't matter whether you're in a three million pound house or a shed you still feel awful but I think when you've got celebrities talking about mental health People won't relate to them because they think, well, you've got the money and you've got the lifestyle and you've got the money to get the help. So what we're trying to do now is not necessarily plug a gap, but there is a massive gap in mental health care in this country. And where this all started, Paul start, thought about a podcast years ago, but I started going on mental health forums. When I started to get well, I thought I wanted to do something to keep busy. And I went on mental health forums and I realised the questions people asked about mental health were quite simple about how they felt and about depression and panic. It wasn't rocket science. It was basic questions and people just wanted to be listened to, have a bit of support, given a bit of direction. And sometimes those people would come off a conversation on a forum and you could tell they just felt much better. Some of, I think one of the biggest problems is sometimes... Mental health could be improved if you just sit down and have someone listen to you. I agree with that. People need to really listen. Communication is a key to many, many problems. 
not just anything with mental health issues, but I think communication can solve so many more things that are happening in the world right now because nobody's wanting to listen. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got something to say, but nobody wants to listen. So I think they should open their ears and open their hearts and start listening. And I totally agree with you. And when you come back to family, not all family, trouble with the UK as well, they've got this status system. And I used to say this in America, what used to make the Americans laugh. The British people looked down their noses to get up everybody else's. And it was a it was a thing I always had because I was always the Brit in America, and that is all there is to it. But it was probably one of the, you know, and it still is. It's Well, it's my second home, really, still now. But it's about talking, and it's right. But it's old school. The old school, the old generation, don't understand it. It's pull your socks up. Get on with it. Get on with it. Look at me. I went through this, and I went through the war, and I went through – and this is what people have got to understand. It's okay to talk out, but corporations have to start jumping on because people are not going to open their mouths in America because you show weakness, you're out that door. And I don't care what anyone tells you, I've seen it happen. It's the, yep. it's the, it's the way out there. And, you know, I totally agree with it. You know, look, uh, you know, I was always said to me, how many vacation years, uh, days do you have off in the UK? When I was in the States, I was lucky. I'd negotiated three weeks, and that was something special. But um, over here, we get five weeks vacation a year, you know, and they look at you in America thinking, do you know what? You're not born, are you? You know, you, you, you don't, you're not, you know. And that's what it's all about here. And, it, and getting back to it, and I've drifted off a little bit there, but – it's about, it is a conversation. It's okay. Yeah, but it's about, you know, talking to people. But people and understanding to, it. But people need to really listen. And I think when we talk and we talk on the podcast, we are really talking and meaning what we're saying. And when we're listening, we're really listening because I think people do talk and people do listen, but there's listening and there's listening. And I think you can you can hear in life sometimes when people are doing a little bit of a cry for help, you know, within your friends. And I've seen that over the years that, um, you know, that there's just hints of things that people say. But I find now since I've spoken out and I put comments on Facebook and people know what happened, the number of people that have come to me and told me the most intimate things about their lives and their mental health. Because I think they know I wouldn't judge them because if people look at what's gone on in my life, goodness me, they would judge me. And people do, and they still do, but I don't really care anymore. But people know they can come to me and could tell me anything and nothing shocks me anymore. It never would. I mean, no one can tell me anything that I wouldn't, you know, I, I would always listen. And I think that's the point. It's about not being judgmental. And I think with mental health, we still are. I think if you admit to a mental health problem, people see it as a weakness. But actually, we've always said yeah. what the, the strength is shown by admitting you've got a problem. The weakness is covering it up. That's yeah, the key. and that's what it's all about. I agree with that. And when we have a chat with guests on our podcast, they say to me, do you know what, Paul, we're coming on because you get it. You get it. And you know you're going to do us a great job by how we express ourselves. You're not going to cut things out. You're not going to put words in our mouth. We, we let the podcast run because it's it's real. It's not scripted. It's real talking, um, understanding each other. And, and 
that is the thing. You you go onto some of these podcasts, and I'm not putting any down, and I'm not going to mention any, but you listen to them, and they sound like they're just talking out of a textbook. And it's like, do you know what? Anxiety, there's, there's 20 types of anxiety. You know, not one glove fits all. And and that is why I'm quite passionate about it, is because I can't stand people what talk out of textbooks. And sometimes, even with doctors and therapists, a therapist can talk to you, but they're not in your head. They have got the medical side of it to help you. The psychiatrists have got that. But as our psychiatrist said, what you're doing, Emma, what you're doing, Paul, is you're, you're speaking out. You're speaking out. And he's given us so much support. The other day, a friend of mine, a psychiatrist, she was on, Kat, one of our, we did an OCD podcast. And her psychiatrist got hold of it and sent it straight away to the private hospital, to their marketing department, and said, you know, market this because this is what healthcare is all about. This is what mental health is all about, being honest. And it's being honest to yourself. And yeah, I don't like to say that there were certain times in my life I felt suicidal. What's wrong with that? You know, and it's a very low part of your life. But do you know what? We've lost people to suicide. And I've given, been given the chance, which is healthcare, to get well. I think someone has to have to, you've got to help yourself a little bit as well. You know, you want to want the help. There's too many people who do dwell sometimes on things. And sometimes you really got to help yourself with your psychiatrist, with your therapist. But what I'm saying is it, it, it's just, I know, it, it, it's just sometimes these doctors don't understand where I can have someone with a mental illness across the table from me and we get each other because we've been there. We've lived it. Well, you give an opportunity for people to be heard. Yeah. Which is which is something that it got lost somewhere along the line in history and society. People stopped hearing deep down yeah. inside. Stopped hearing. Yeah. They could listen, but they stopped hearing what people were saying. So, well done. I, I applaud you both for that. I think that you've in what you're providing and what you've done. That's why I couldn't wait to talk to you guys because I know you're open and you're honest. And this is something that should not be uh, shoved under the bed and put in a closet. It's something that uh, needs to be discussed and talked about. My wife and I have been married for 31 years. So we've been dealing with it for 31 years Yeah, from, from that perspective. So I say we because obviously we're a family unit. And That's it. So we understand it and I appreciate it. And tell me a little bit about your more about your podcast and how somebody can hear it. Well, you can. Uh, I, I'm not a very techie guy, but you can hear it on Apple and Acast. And also, if you go to our website, um, www.mentalheads.co.uk, then we've got a link on there where you can tap in and then go to, you know, you can hear the yeah. recordings, the podcast. So it's Apple, Acast and Spotify. Yeah, and actually. Spotify. Um, and we come out every other Tuesday. So we are going to talk about uh, mental hospitals this this coming Tuesday, but we've had to make it a two-part. So uh, because there's people want to know what goes on in a mental hospital, you know, and the questions, you know, I, do you have a padded, padded uh, cell? A cell? <laughs> and it, do you know, but these are the questions people ask. So we we've we decided to do this podcast coming out on Tuesday about mental hospitals and what goes on inside from the private sector 
and also the NHS side, which uh, Emma experienced. Also, we want to do, we thought about what to do content-wise this week. And we thought, well, we would hope Mental Hospital may get a different audience in as well. Because what we want to make sure is these podcasts aren't just for people who have mental health issues. They're for people to help them understand, maybe friends or family that have mental health issues. But by doing something on mental hospitals, we think, well, let's do a subject matter that people may be interested in. And then it will draw people in to then look and listen to the others. And the journey of the podcast is very different because the first one was about COVID-19 and surviving that and how it was affecting you. Then we did OCD, which was quite a heavy topic yep. with Kat, who has suffered for many years. And then the third one was on surviving babies with my friend who's a doula. But we talked about the effect of having children on mental health and men's mental health. Surprisingly, how much having a baby and going through the childbirth with a woman can really mentally affect a man especially if there are problems and complications yeah and then this week mental hospitals so we want to keep it sort of a variety of topics and and what i wanted to do also is that i designed a little anxiety kit uh which i sell on the podcast because what i want to do is try and help people who can't afford therapy and if we can get enough sold, we, we want to set up something where we can offer this. You know, it's a lot of money for people. And what it is, is so I made this little anxiety kit. And in there, you've got your lavender oil, something to smell. We've got what we call the anxiety sweets, which is a, which is a, a, a candy over here, which is very sour. And by if you have a panic attack and you put a sour sweet a candy in your mouth, your mind goes to how sour that candy is and it takes you off the mind of the panic attack. Now, for someone to try it, it really does work. So I put those in a little kit, a little stress ball, pen, paper, so you can write your thoughts down. So we're going to sell those. They're they're up on the website. And the donations we get from it, we we, want to help other people, like, you know, and that's the way forward. And keep the podcast going because they're not cheap to produce. And uh, we we just want to keep going with it because we we feel that you know as I said to you before if we can just help one person, um, well, that's our job. I that. appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's I uh, kudos to both of you, honestly, for for being being honest and being open and providing a service to people and allow people to be heard. Again, people don't listen anymore, but you're allowing a voice. You're allowing a voice for this, and and I think that's very, very important. Again, we've been living it with it in our family yeah. for a long time, so I understand. Yeah. I will put a connection to how to get your podcast in your website in the show notes so that everybody can just click on it very easily and get over to you and then take a look at that. And- Mental heads, you know, and, and to get it heard. And that's what the thing about podcasts, there's a lot out there, and we just want to get heard. And because it's very important, even for you just take if you was an older generation and you didn't really understand it. We've, they've got somewhere to go, uh, you know, uh, that generation, and also listen to how someone is suffering with OCD. So, yeah, um, you know, thank you for that. It, it, you know, that's, that's really nice of you to do that. Any last words of wisdom? I'm not going to say don't give up. I, I, I'm going to say take one day as it comes and don't stay silent. Speak out speak out if it gets really bad talk to a family member 
if you can confide in them and if not go to the doctor but don't hit the ground and then have someone make choices for you make choices while you're able to do it shall i have a um i would say what's most important is you know your body better than anyone so no doctor can tell you what you're thinking how you feel so you need the tenacity to to keep fighting keep shouting to be heard and you'll get there in the end but the key is you've got to keep shouting to be heard because if you feel so strongly and your body's telling you something then you've got to keep going till someone listens and gets you the right treatment outstanding emma paul thank you very much for sharing your journey with me i really appreciate it Thank you for the advice. Thank you for giving an opportunity for other individuals to understand your journey and how to get some help with that. Well, I appreciate I appreciate your time and allowing us to come on. And, um, you know, we hope some, some people get a lot out of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.